And I want y'all to know that this is going to be different this morning because, um, well, number one, in the bulletin, it says my sermon this morning is from Zechariah uh, uh, 7, but uh, the Lord changed my mind, and so I don't have my normal three to seven pages of notes. This is what I got. That's it. <laughs> Second Thessalonians chapter 2, we're going to read the entire chapter. If you have it, if you would stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to soon be shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. For this reason God will send them a strong delusion, that they should believe the lie that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. This ends the reading of God's word, the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray. Almighty God and everlasting Father, we thank you for your faithfulness this morning. We thank you for your goodness and your kindness toward us. We ask you to give us grace to understand this word before us. We ask you to open up our hearts and minds so that we would not be shaken about these things that are to come, but, Lord, that we would understand what you have for us. And we ask it all in your Son's name. Amen. You may be seated. I want to preach this morning on recognizing the lawless one. Recognizing the lawless one. How many of you remember, um, how many of you remember the old Twilight Zone series? Now, I'm talking about the old black and white one, not the new color one that they messed up. In the, old, in the old Twilight Zone series, in about season two, episode five, there was a story about a man who uh, was, a, he was a young American man and he was hiking in Europe. And he came upon a storm, or, or a storm came upon him, and he had to stop hiking. He had to find a place to hide from the storm, and so he found this monastery. And he found this monastery, and these monks were staying there, and... Uh, he went and saw and asked them if he could stay there until the storm passed by, and they were kind of reluctant, but they let him come in, and he got to wandering around the monastery. And as he went down into the depths of the monastery, he found a person, a 
human being locked in a cage, held, being held prisoner. And the guy that was in the prison cell said, listen, these monks are insane. You've got to get me out of here. And uh, he was just begging and pleading with the guy to find the key and let him go. And uh, this guy, he went to one of the monks that was over that monastery. He said, he said, you've got a guy down there who's saying that y'all are crazy, that y'all are crazy ones, and that he wants to be let go. He said, why, he said, why are you doing this? And that monk said, son, that man is Satan himself, and we've got him held captive. He said, don't let him deceive you. He said, he's a smooth talker. And, of course, that sounded crazy to this American hiker. So he goes back. So when all the monks are asleep, he goes back down into that jail cell, and he opens it up, and he lets that guy loose. And then pretty soon after that guy gets loose, he turns into this big beast, and he escapes in a puff of smoke. And that monk sees what happened. And that guy said, in the monk, monk tells, tells the guy, he says, remember this. He said, remember that you're the one who let loose evil on the world. And that guy says, I, sh I should have known it. I should have known it, but he talked so smooth and he talked so well that I couldn't help but believe it. Listen, that's, that's the way the devil works. That's the way the devil works. Now, of course, that's the Twilight Zone. It's a fictional story. We know that didn't actually happen, but it's a good illustration. It's a good illustration of how we see the work of Satan at work in the world. And this and it's this this work of Satan that Paul describes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 with the coming of this person that he labels as the man of sin or the son of perdition. And so what I want us to see this morning is I want us to see first of all the description of the lawless one, the description of the lawless one. Notice that he is described at the end of verse 3 as the son of perdition. Now the, the, the phrase the son of perdition, if you look it up, it's only used in one other place in Scripture. And it's used in John chapter 17 verse 12 to describe Judas Iscariot who betrayed Jesus. And so what this tells me is that when Paul is talking about this lawless one who is to come, he's talking about this person who's, who's almost going to be like Judas in a way. He's almost going to be like Judas in a way because he presents himself as an ally of Christ. He presents himself as an ally of the church. He presents himself as a smooth talker, as a charismatic figure. as someone. He presents himself as someone that you can be buddy-buddy with, that someone you can trust. But he turns out to be just like Judas. He turns out to be a backstabber. He turns out to be a traitor. And what we find in verse 4 is that he opposes. He, he is the son of man, or the man of sin, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. He exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. And so what he wants is he wants that place that only belongs to God. He wants that honor that only belongs to God. And so, he presents himself as an ally of the church. He presents himself as someone you can trust. But all along he wants harm. He wants what, really he wants what Judas wanted. Judas wanted money. Judas wanted power. 
Judas wanted all of the things that corrupts a human being. And see, the lawless one, the one that Paul describes, this lawless one, like I said, he'll present himself as an ally of the church. Now, personally, this is why I'm leery of any political figure or even any religious figure that wants the church to have any kind of attachment to political or social movements. I'm leery of anybody that wants the, that wants the church to have an attachment to any kind of political or social movements. And here's why. Because the church itself, the church doesn't need a political movement. Because the church is a political movement. Now you, you might ask, well, how is the church a political movement? Because we believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he is king. Right? That's a political statement. It was a political statement in the first century whenever Romans wanted people to worship the emperor. It was, a, it was a political statement in that time period where the emperors wanted to be worshipped as gods. And so whenever you said Jesus Christ is Lord, what you were saying is that Caesar wasn't Lord. So when you said Jesus is Lord, you're saying Caesar's not Lord. You're saying the political powers that be are not Lord. And so Jesus is Lord. It's a political statement. And so the church doesn't need to be attached to political movements. The church doesn't need to be attached to political ideologies because the church itself is a political movement. Not only that, but the church is also a social program. And, and you might ask, well, how's the church a social program? Good question, Kevin. I'm glad you asked that. The church is a social program because we are a place where God is forming a family out of strangers. The church is a place where God is creating a people that were once not a people. That's what Peter tells us. And so Stanley Howaross tells us that the church is a place where God is forming a family out of strangers. And so we are a social program. And we are a social program because we are all about bringing people together in Christ. We are about bringing people together in Christ. See, the problem is, whenever it comes to, whenever it comes to ch the church getting involved with social movements, the big problem is that the focus gets shifted on bringing people together without any real purpose. Well, well why, how do you see that manifested? Well, you see it manifested in the homosexual movement, actually, because... What does the homosexual movement say? Well, they say love is love. Okay, well, what does that mean? Water is water. Big deal. It doesn't mean anything. It's, it's, it's love for the sake of love itself. But the problem is it's not actually love. It's not actually how love is defined. So we can't have a social movement where people just come together for the sake of togetherness or for the sake of warm, fuzzy feelings. We have to be together in Christ. We have to be together for the sake of doing what Christ did and for the sake of doing what Christ told us to do. That's why Jesus says in the Great Commission to go into all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey. Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. So we're together for a purpose. We are a social movement. We are a social program that has a purpose, and our purpose is found in the plan of Christ. And so the lawless one's description is he, he's described as someone who wants all of the value, all of the power, and all of the honor that belong to Jesus Christ. Not only that, but we need to see the lawless one's desire. Look at the end of verse 4. So this lawless one, he opposes and he exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worship, so that he sits as God in the temple. 
Notice the, notice the end of verse 4, so that he sits as God in the temple, showing himself that he is God. Now I want you to picture this for just a minute. Paul is writing this letter in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He's writing this in about 56, 57 A.D., okay? So the temple, Herod's temple, is still standing. The destruction of Jerusalem hasn't come yet. That won't come until another 12 years down the road in 70 A.D. So Herod's temple is still standing. And Paul says that this lawless one, he sits as God in the temple. He sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, Paul, there's a, this, this evokes a certain idea that is taught in the book of Daniel, and Jesus mentioned it in Matthew 24. And, and so what this references is the abomination of desolation. The abomination of desolation. Now, Paul doesn't use that phrase in his letters. And, and, I, and I feel like the reason Paul doesn't use that phrase in his letters is because it would be lost on his audience. Because he's writing to the church at Thessalonica where his audience is primarily made up of Gentiles. These are, these are not Jewish people. They're not entirely familiar with the Old Testament like Jews would be. And so Paul is not going to use any illustrations that would not be familiar to them. So he's just going to say what he means and means what he says. So he says that this lawless one, he comes to sit as God in the temple, showing himself that he is God. And so this is a reference to the abomination of desolation, which is brought up in the book of Daniel. If you go back to Daniel chapter 11, Daniel describes the abomination of desolation as an event where a ruler will come in and he will, and he will conquer and then he will make peace with Jerusalem. And then he will break that peace tree. Now this is all, all this is in Daniel chapter 11. You can look it up. This ruler will come in. He'll make peace with Jerusalem. Write a peace tree and everything. And then before the week is over, he'll break that peace tree. And he will walk into the temple. And he will offer a sacrifice on the altar that causes that place to be a desolation. He will offer a sacrifice on an altar in the temple that causes it to be desolate. <clears throat> it causes it to be desecrated. Now I want to show you something. Daniel prophesies that in Daniel chapter 11. Now as you move forward in between the Old Testaments and the New Testaments, you have what's, you have what's called the intertestamental period. Now we don't have... <clears throat> We don't have in our Bibles a history of the intertestamental period. But a brief history of it is recorded in the Maccabees, which is an apocryphal book. It's, it's, it's all history. And so what is recorded for us in the book of 1 Maccabees, in chapter 1, is that there was a man named Antiochus, and you can look this up in the writings of Josephus as well. Josephus talks about Antiochus. And what we see in 1 Maccabees chapter 1 is that Antiochus came and he conquered Egypt. He conquered Egypt, and then after he conquered Egypt, he said he went to Jerusalem. And this is what 1 Maccabees chapter 1 verse 30 tells us. Deceitfully, he spoke peaceable words to them, and they believed him, but he suddenly fell upon the city and dealt a severe blow and destroyed many people of Israel. He plundered the city, burned it with fire, and tore down its houses and its surrounding walls. 
Verse 37, on every side of the sanctuary they set innocent, they shed innocent blood. They even defiled the sanctuary. Then, verse 41 and 42, then the king wrote to his whole kingdom that all should be one people and that each should give up his customs. And then, when you get down to verse 47, what you read is that they went into the temple to sacrifice swine and unclean animals. They went into the temple and sacrificed swine and unclean animals. This is exactly what Daniel prophesied would happen 150 years before in Daniel chapter 11. So all this is going on in between the Old and New Testaments. All this is going on in between Malachi and Matthew. And then Jesus, in Matthew chapter 24, couple hundred years after all this happened, Jesus says this in Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verse 14, listen to what Jesus says. He says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Look at the next verse. Therefore, well, when you see a therefore in the Bible, what do you do? Thank you. You go back and see what it's there for. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may be in the winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world or until this time, nor ever shall be. So what does Jesus tell us? He references that same event that Daniel prophesied and that was fulfilled in 1 Maccabees chapter 1. And Jesus says this is going to happen all over again. This is going to happen all over again. And so what happens? You move down to the you move down through history of biblical prophecy and into 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul says that the man of sin will be revealed and he will sit as God in the temple showing himself that he is God. Well, what we read about what what we read about in history in 70 AD is that when the city of Jerusalem was destroyed, what happened was, before it was destroyed, they walked into the temple with armor and with emblems bearing the image of their false gods, and they set shop up in the temple, and they destroyed it. And so, the abomination of desolation happened once in 1 Maccabees chapter 1. Jesus says it'll happen again. Paul says it'll happen again. And then it happened again in A.D. 70. And then the book of Revelation, which John wrote in the late 90s. So after Jerusalem was destroyed, after the temple is destroyed, John writes in Revelation that it'll happen again. He talks about another abomination of desolation. So what does that mean? It means there's a pattern that keeps happening throughout history. One man of sin pops up right after another. And it's all going to culminate in one big bad boy.
And so you look throughout history, and anytime you see a world leader come to power, anytime you see a world leader come to power, the, the assumption is, well, maybe this is the Antichrist. Maybe this is the man of sin. Maybe this is the lawless one. Well, it happened with Hitler. They said Hitler was the Antichrist. They said Mussolini was the Antichrist. They said Stalin was the Antichrist. They, right now they're saying, Vladimir, there's some folks saying Vladimir Putin is the Antichrist. Well, if you go back way before that, they said Caesar was the Antichrist. During the time of the Reformation in the 1500s when Martin Luther <coughs> was uh, kicked out of the Catholic Church for trying to reform it, they said the Pope was the Antichrist. Well, who is it? Well, the answer is yes. Who is it? Yes, it's all of them. They're all Antichrist figures. Because if you read what Paul says here about the man of sin, he seems to have in mind one man. He seems to have in mind one figure. But if you go back to John's letters in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he uses the word Antichrist, and he seems to have in mind multiple figures. Well, which is it? Yes. It's all of them. It's all of the above. You've got people who will come to power and they will try to dissuade, they will try to dissuade the people of God away from the truth of God. They want your attention. They want your affection. They want your worship. Now we talked about this a few weeks ago when we covered the end, when we covered the end of Babylon in Revelation 18. We, we kind of have this notion in our minds that we're above all of that now. You know, we're modern people. We don't worship our leaders anymore. Au contraire. We, we have this notion that we don't worship our leaders anymore. Then why is it that there was a guy, and of course he was a nutcase. I'm sure we'll all agree he was a nutcase. Why is it that there was a guy who wrote a book that's over 300 pages explaining why he believed Donald Trump was the Messiah? Listen, we think we're above all that. We're not. These leaders come to power, they want our attention, they want our worship, they want our affection, and what we have to do is we have to have a backbone and we have to stand up and say, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord, not Joe Biden. Jesus is Lord, not Putin. Jesus is Lord, not Trump. And so the lawless one's desire is to be worshipped as God in the temple. But we also see the lawless one's demise. I want you to look at verse 8. And then the <coughs> verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and with the brightness of his coming. Notice that the Lord will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and with the brightness of his coming. Now we see how all of this plays out at the end of Revelation. <clears throat> in Revelation chapter 19. If you look over there real quick, Revelation chapter 19. If you look at verses 11 through 16, you see this picture of Jesus coming on a white horse. <clears throat> and verse 15 tells us that out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself will tread the winepress of the fierceness of the, of the He himself will tread the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has it, he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
That's who he is. Verse 17, And then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And then the beast was captured. Here's, here's where we see this. <clears throat> here's where we see the end of the lawless one. And then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. <clears throat> now remember... This mark, we always, we always get this mark of the beast, we always confuse it. We always think of it like an actual tattoo, we think of it like a chip, we think of it like a literal thing. It's not a literal thing, it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor for devotion. Because that's how they would swear to Caesar in the first century. They would swear to Caesar with the, in the first century by, by marking their right hand or their forehead. And so what Revelation tells us is that those who have shown devotion to the beast, those who have shown devotion to the lawless one, those who have shown devotion to the false prophet, they will be cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. And so John sees this graphic image this graphic image of the beast and the false prophet being consumed by the beasts of the field and by the birds of the air. And then they're thrown into the lake of fire. And I want you to notice something. As we're in 2 Thessalonians, if you go back to 2 Thessalonians, this time look at chapter 1. Paul is writing the church at Thessalonica about these issues that have cropped up. And that one of the issues is that people have come along and they've tried to deceive the church at Thessalonica by telling them that the day of the Lord has already come. They've tried to, do, they've tried to tell them that the day of the Lord has already come, you've missed it, <clears throat> and now, and now it's, it's trouble for you from here on out. And what Paul says, Paul says is that I've, I'm writing so that you're not soon shaken in mind or troubled either by word or by spirit or by letter as if from us as though the day of Christ had come. That's what he says in 2 Thessalonians 2.2. But if you back up to chapter 1, in verse 6, this is what Paul says about those people who have come trying to deceive the church. He says, it is a righteous thing. Look at chapter 1, verse 6. It is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. It is a righteous thing for God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. And so what Paul is saying is that if people come along and try to trouble you and try to disturb the peace that you have in Christ, if they try to trouble the security that you have in God's Word, then God is going to repay them back with more trouble. And it's a righteous thing for God to do that. It is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. Verse 7, And to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, 
taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the, of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes in that day to be glorified in His saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. So what's Paul saying there? Paul is saying that the lawless one, the false prophet, beast, whatever label you want to put on him, Paul is saying that these deceivers, these antichrists, are going to have the same end as those who try to disturb the truth of the gospel. They're all going to meet the same end. They're all going to find destruction in the end, unless there's repentance. People need to repent. If they, find, if they have found that they are preaching a false gospel, they need to repent. And so we see the lawless one's demise. The lawless one will find a demise. And when, when the lawless one meets his end, that's when we have victory. A victory that we get to share him. So if you go back to the book of 1 Thessalonians, I'm about to close. Paul has addressed, um, Paul has addressed eschatology in the previous letter in 1 Thessalonians. He's addressed these end times issues before. He hasn't, spe he hasn't specifically addressed the issue of the lawless one. He didn't do that until 2 Thessalonians 2. But he did talk about the, the end of all things in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. He says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means perceive those who are asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with Him in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. I want you to notice something. First, at the beginning of verse 13 in chapter 4, he says, Brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant. And then at the end of verse 18 in chapter 4, he says, I want you to comfort one another with these words. And then he says at the beginning of chapter 2 in 2 Thessalonians, he says, that I don't want you to be shaken in mind or troubled by word, by power, or by word, by letter, or by spirit. So what this tells me is that the purpose of all of this, the purpose of bringing up these issues, is not to cause division, it's not to cause fear, it's not to cause strife, it's to bring comfort. Paul's purpose is not for confusion, but for comfort. And see, that's the issue. We, we're afraid to address the issue of the end times because we're afraid it's just confusing, we're afraid it's confounding. We're afraid it's above our reach. And so we just don't need to worry about it. Whatever whatever's going to happen is going to happen. But here's the thing. Paul, Paul brings up these issues. Paul's not afraid to talk about these issues. Because he knows that talking about these issues is going to bring comfort. Here's the thing. We don't know exactly how everything's going to pan out. 
I've, I've heard people say, you know, we, we debate on whether, we debate about premillennialism, all millennialism, postmillennialism, but there's a lot of people out there who said they're a panmillennialist because it'll all pan out in the end, you know? <laughs> and I believe that. But we shouldn't avoid these issues. We should take joy in them because they're given for our comfort. They're given for our edification. And so, <clears throat> that's all I got this morning. It's past 11. The Baptists have already beat us to Western Sizzling. If all minds are clear, let's go ahead and close with one last song. <clears throat>